Ready for Thanksgiving? Come on now. Get in the mood, in the spirit of Thanksgiving. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm thankful for you. Look him in the eye and confess it. I'm thankful for you. Well, that ain't too bad. You just did what the Apostle Paul did in the book of Ephesians. We're studying the book of Ephesians. He writes this letter. They didn't have the holiday called Thanksgiving, but Paul knew how to live in the spirit of Thanksgiving. He was thankful for them because of their faithfulness and because of their love for one another. I hope this Thanksgiving we would be known for the same thing and the faithfulness that we have, our faith towards Christ, and that we are growing in our love for one another, not just our physical family, but also the church family, the body of Christ. May that be our prayer this holiday season. It's hard to believe that we're in the holidays. It seems like we just came out of summer, and then uh, we were just celebrating uh, the festival uh, in October, and we're going through Festival, and now all of a sudden we're getting ready for Thanksgiving. And before we ever got even to Halloween, we found ourselves already looking to Christmas. If you went anywhere in this city, we were already putting up Christmas lights. Have you noticed half your neighborhood's already covered in Christmas lights? Uh, the store's already packed. It keeps moving back a week earlier and a week earlier and a week earlier. The lights are going. They already have the music channel going. 104.1 is already blasting Christmas music, and we haven't even eaten our turkey yet. It's crazy. The ads are already going. Takes me back to my childhood. Now, again, a lot in this audience won't get it. We used to shop not on Amazon, Online, we used to shop at 1-800-GIFTS. Now, you might have to ask your grandparents about this, but it was seen on TV. Uh, we found all of our Christmas items at late-night television. We were told and promised that these were the latest, greatest things that would make anybody's life better that Christmas. As a result, many of us fell for the Ginsu knives. We fell for the Chia Pets. And then they saw we were so vulnerable and gullible, they led us to the next advanced gift. It is the pet rock, right? And if you ever saw these commercials on television, people bought these things. First service, I asked them to raise their hands. Half the audience had Ginsu knives somewhere in their house. And they promised us, as they would tell you, you could have this for the low, low price. It was always $19.95. Really strange. $19.95, this could be yours. But wait! There's, you guys didn't even see the commercials, and you know, you've already been brainwashed. There's more. Well, we're going to see in the book of Ephesians all that we have in Christ, and we've seen a lot of things as we've walked through the book of Ephesians, but wait, there's more. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. So far, we've seen that uh, we can pray for each other, and we should pray. We've been praying for wisdom and revelation and calling, just like Josh led us through this morning. I hope you did that all last week, praying that over yourself, praying that for your church, that we would grow in God's wisdom, that God would reveal to us things we've never seen, or that we need to see not with these eyes, but with our hearts, and that we would be every day waking up and praying about God's call on our life and on our church. May we be focused on His kingdom and not ours. We've learned in Ephesians that we are the saints of God, transformed by the grace of God. That we're not sinners saved by grace. We are the saints of God, transformed by His grace. We have learned that in Christ we are faithful and we are blessed. We've learned in Christ we are holy and we are blameless. We have learned in Christ we've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. We have His mark on us. We are His property. He bought us with a price. 
and we have learned that we are joint heirs with Jesus. But wait, there's more. Take a look at it, verse 19. He went on to also say, and I'm praying that you would see this reality. What reality? Look at verse 19. What did he pray for the church at Ephesus that we need to pray for ourselves? That you would understand what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. We know that God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. There's nothing more powerful than Almighty God. But I want you to see what Paul understood and what he was reminding them is that that mighty, surpassing, great power is directed towards you who believe. That power has a purpose, and that power resides in us. And Paul wanted them to understand, you're not just saved to go to heaven. You've been saved and have the power of Almighty God. For these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Too many Christians today are frustrated because they're trying to be strong for God, trying to do God things in their own strength. And Paul's reminding them that's not the way you do this Christian thing. It isn't about being strong for God, being better today than you were yesterday. It's about submitting to the holy God who lives in you and experiencing the resurrection power that gives you the ability to live differently than when you were a sinner in need of God's grace. He directs them towards this power. And look at how he describes the power. It is the surpassing greatness of his power. It's that power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that power that conquered sin and conquered death and conquered the grave, that same power, that surpassing great power of a holy God lives in believers. He lives in you. And he says, I'm praying that you would come to understand that, that you would experience that, that you would live in that power, not trying to be strong for God. I know this to be true, and it's been true in my life, and I still struggle with it from time to time, that there are times and seasons of life where we fall into the traps or the deceitfulness of sin. We convince ourselves, well, it's just a bad habit, it's just a bad attitude. Those issues are issues of the flesh. And there are way too many believers today that have fallen for the lie, but I just can't have victory in that. I just can't overcome that. That's just something that's a part of who I am. That's been a part of our family tree. That's just who we are. And they buy into the lie that they have to be defeated. Paul wanted them to understand, no, you have a power in you that is the surpassing greatness of anything you'll ever experience, anything you'll ever struggle with, and anything that tries to own you. You don't have to live in addiction. You don't have to live in defeat, God has made you to be more than a conqueror. In Romans chapter 8, he breaks that out. He says, for we are more than conquerors. We've looked at that before, and we've talked about what does it mean to be more than a conqueror. Well, first of all, what's a conqueror? A conqueror is somebody who conquers others. They're somebody who wins the war, wins the battle. Well, what could be more than somebody who wins the war? If you go back and you study your history, you'll find that any world conqueror has had his days of victory, but every single one of those conquerors has been conquered, except for one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what looked like one who was defeated, hanging on a cross, he proved three days later that he was the champion of champions, the conqueror of conquerors. He conquered death in the grave, and that Jesus 
That one who could not be conquered is the one who lives in you and me. So don't walk around saying, well, I guess I've just got to surrender. I'm just going to be defeated in this area of my life. Paul said, no, I pray that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power that lives in you. But wait, there's what? More. Look at it, verse 20. He goes on and says this. That power which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What's the significance of that? We know Jesus resurrected from the dead. Why do we have to know what he's doing now and where he's at? Because it makes a difference in your day today. That he not only rose from the dead, he isn't just sitting on a cloud waiting for you to join him for a kumbaya eternity. He rose from the dead with an eternal purpose. Take a look at it. For he is seated at the right hand of the heavenly places far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, he rose from the grave victorious, not just over the grave, not just over death, but over all authority, all dominions. That this rebellion that was led by Lucifer, who we now know as Satan, and all of his rebellious demons, they don't get a chance to own this thing. He owns it all. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Can I get an amen from a younger generation? You'll learn it. It'll come. Let it come to you. But notice what Paul is trying to get them to understand. He's trying to get them to understand, guys, your Christian faith is more than a ticket to heaven. It's a transformational, life-changing event. It transforms you from a sinner that needs grace to a saint who's been transformed by God's grace. It is a transformation in your life that allows you to have victory, not just over death, but also over the power of sin today. There are too many Christians living defeated lives because they don't know the surpassing greatness of the risen Savior. They don't understand that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the power of God that's alive in them. They don't understand the importance and significance of the resurrection of the Savior. So Paul draws their attention to it. This Jesus who's changed your life, the resurrected Christ, he draws their attention to the resurrection. That changes everything. In this world, throughout the ages past and even in the ages to come, there will be all kinds of religion that comes onto this earth. Why? The Bible says Satan appears as an angel of light. He's done more destruction on this earth, not through sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but done it through religion. I believe that hell will be populated more than with the rebels of sin to the religious hearts of man who had a religion but not a savior. He creates religion after religion after religion after religion. And some could look at Christianity, and they do, and they say, well, that's just another religion. Wrong. What is the difference in Christianity and all other religions that have been or will ever pop up on the scene to come? Every single one of those religions will have a prophet. Every single one of them will have a religious person who brings the religion. And every one of those prophets have died. Some would say, well, Jesus also died. That's just another religion. Well, the difference is this. In all other religions, you can find their prophets' tombs and you can find their bones. But in Christianity, you cannot find a body. 
You can find a tomb, but it's empty. Jesus rose from the dead. Only God can do that. And that is the difference in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is who he said he is. He did what he said he was going to do. And he conquered the power of death and the grave through his resurrection. We're not just another religion. We're experiencing God's will for those who he's created. That none should perish, but all have everlasting life. And it can only come when we who were dead in our sin have our penalty removed through the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he rose from the dead, listen to Mark 16, verse 19. It's surprising through the Old Testament and the New Testament, it speaks of this Messiah and that he would eventually be sitting at the right hand of God. Mark 16, verse 19 says this. Look on the screen. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Peter, when he preached the very first sermon, Acts chapter 2, you don't have to turn there. But as he was preaching this first sermon ever, he talked about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen in on his first sermon. First one ever preached after Jesus had resurrected. He said, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died, he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. As he's talking in Jerusalem, he's talking to many in the crowd who had looked to their patriarchs, Abraham, David, others, Moses. And he brings up David because a prophecy had been declared that the coming one, the hope for Israel, would be a descendant of David, and he would not lose the throne as David's generations had. He would retain the throne, one of the descendants of David. And he says, as great as David was, he got buried, and we still have his tomb today. He went on and said, but he was a great prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. He looked ahead, and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. As David professed what the Holy Spirit had put in him, as he declared as a prophet does the word of God, he spoke of a future event of the Messiah, but they all understood now this side of the cross in an empty tomb, he was prophesying about the resurrection of Christ. What was this prophecy? that he would neither be abandoned to Hades nor his flesh would suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Now think about that. Think about what he just declared. In Jerusalem, to eyewitnesses who were living in that moment and in that day, he was speaking to thousands and tens of thousands of people because over 3,000 were saved that day. So we know it was a huge audience. It wasn't just a small little gathering of religious kooks. It was a whole town that poured out and saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they said, what is this that's going on? And he said to them who were alive and knew exactly what had just happened just a few days ago. You all saw. You've seen the tomb. It's empty. Explain that. Well, the Romans, the Romans had the tomb sealed. They didn't want that lie they thought was a lie perpetrated. It wasn't the Jews who stole the body. That would only validate Christ's claims. And the 
the, the disciples were so scared for their own lives, they couldn't steal the body. They were hiding in fear. Where'd the body go? He resurrected from the dead. And Peter said, every one of you know what I'm talking about. If that had not happened, if there wasn't an empty tomb, they would have all said, hey, liar, lunatic, go home. You're a liar. There's the tomb. We know where his body, his body was gone. He said, you all were witnesses to this very thing. And therefore, having been exalted, look at this, to the right hand of God, and had received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you see and you hear now. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but it was the one he spoke of when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He said, what we've studied in Scripture all these years, what David prophesied was not speaking of him. It wasn't speaking of a literal king over Jerusalem. It was speaking of Christ who was crucified, who rose from the dead, and now is sitting as King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of the Father. In 1 Peter chapter 3, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want us to dig in for a moment about the significance and the importance of this location spoken of. Why didn't it say Jesus just rose from the dead? Why is it important that he is sitting at the right hand of God? 1 Peter chapter 3, the last part of verse 21 says that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, there's the phrase again, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This issue of being at the right hand of God speaks of the authority of who Christ is, the significance of who Christ is. He wasn't just a man who spoke God things. He was God who pointed man to those things. He was God in the flesh who left his throne, born in a manger, which we're about to celebrate in December, lived a perfect life all the way to a cross, was buried in a tomb, died for the sins of the world, resurrected three days later. But back up to verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 3. And before we talk about this God who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, look at the challenge Peter gave his audience in relationship to this Jesus. He said in verse 15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify him as the Lord of your life. The one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, we get all kinds of imagery that comes in our head when we hear words. God sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And for some people, the way they see that, and I'll illustrate with this object lesson here. Some just see that phrase and they say, well, he's done his duty. He's sitting down because he's finished. And he has. He has finished his work here on earth, but he's still the high priest working on your behalf this day. And some people, it's what I call bar stool Jesus. He's somebody we can approach when we need something. We're discouraged, we're down, and we just need Jesus to show up, and we need a friend. We need Jesus, the 1-800-Jesus, to bail us out. We need something from Jesus. And there he is sitting in heaven waiting for us to come to him with something he can do for us. Barstool 
Jesus. Verse 15 talks about a different Jesus. The gospel speaks of a different Jesus. Not the Jesus that Western Christianity has created, barstool Jesus, but a different Jesus. Let me give you a, a little bit better picture. And maybe this will help us a little bit more. In verse 15, Peter was talking about this Jesus. See if that helps you. What is this? It's a what? It's a throne. Why were thrones created? Who were thrones built for? Kings. Not anybody sits in this chair. Anybody can sit in that chair. A barstool Jesus is just a Jesus that we need to be what we need him to be. When we need him at the time we need him. But Peter reminded his audience, he said, sanctify Christ as Lord of your life, the king and the boss. And when it says that Jesus resurrected from the dead and was seated at the right hand of God, it is God who is sovereign over all authorities, over all creation. He is the king, and the Bible says Jesus is the king of kings. He resurrected from the dead and he returned back to his rightful place, the throne that belongs to God, the ruler of all things. And so Paul was pointing them to the resurrected, magnified understanding of who Jesus is. He wasn't a prophet, although he was. He wasn't a man, although he was man and God. He was God who became flesh. He is the king of glory who came to this earth and emptied himself so that you and I could be restored back to relationship with a holy God. And here's our struggle. There's some people who've looked to a barstool Jesus. Lord, I don't want to go to hell. Lord, give me a ticket. Lord, bail me out. Lord, I don't want to spend eternity in hell. And they accept a barstool Jesus. And don't understand that salvation comes when you sanctify him as the king of your life. See, I had to come to that realization that my problem was this. I was sitting on the throne. It was my life. It was my future. It was my choices. It was my will. And I was living for me. I was sitting on the throne. You know where that spirit comes from? You can write this reference down. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. It is the spirit of your enemy, Satan. The Bible says... He was created by God, a glorious angelic being, referred to as Lucifer in the Old Testament. Some believe that he was the choir director of heaven, the one that led the other created angels in worship of God, surrounding the throne and directing all worship to the king. And then something entered his heart. We don't understand it. We don't know all of it. We just know through revelation that Lucifer decided as he looked in the mirror, whew, I'm stunning. Whew, I'm the prettiest of all God's creation. 
why does he get the throne 100% of the time? Maybe I could have it every once in a while. I want what belongs to the king. Listen to Isaiah 14, verse 12. Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have been weakened, or you have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recess of the world. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high God. Lucifer, who wanted the attention in heaven, wanted to be like God, got cast down to this earth. You know what he's been trying to do ever since? Fight for the throne. And one of the great ways he does the battles is he goes after the bride of Christ, you and me, the creation of God. He doesn't want you to let God be the king. So he brings you his heartbeat. You get to be king. Hey, try it out. And so what we, we, don't, we don't realize we're doing this. Excuse me, Jesus, could you step aside? And we take the seat. And we decide, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I know mom and dad said don't do this. I know I learned in church. I know the Bible says this. But you know what? I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. And that's what we do. We play king or queen. We decide we're going to date how our generation says we should date. We're going to determine what is right and what is wrong. I'm going to do what I want to do, what feels right, looks right, seems right, and everybody else tells me is right. And the problem is, we have taken over the throne. God forgive us for our arrogance and listen to the lies of the enemy. Jesus resurrected from the dead. And why did he die? Because of your sin and mine. And this belongs to Christ and Christ alone. We do not belong there. And I promise you, when you live there, you will regret it. Let me take you to Hebrews and we'll close. Go to Hebrews chapter 1 and let me show you why there should only be Christ on the throne and no one else. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says this. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. For he is the radiance of his glory he is the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, listen to this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, and he has inherited a more excellent name than they. There are four reasons this throne belongs only to Jesus and no one else, certainly not you or me. The first, it says, is because he is the radiance of God's glory. He is holy. He is God. He is without sin. He is the only one who's ever been without sin, and only God can sit on the throne. He is God, and this is his, not yours. You don't get to be the boss. You may think you're the boss. We try to be the boss. We think we can be the boss. And I'll show you later why that doesn't work. Number two, the second reason this belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and not you or me is because he is the exact representation of God's nature. 
Jesus said this. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen a prophet. Is that what he said? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How could he say that? Matter of fact, the Jews thought he was blaspheming, holy God. You're just a man, they thought. No, what Jesus was saying is, I am God. I and the Father are one. Only God belongs on the throne of our lives. I put it this way. The reason he belongs on the throne is because he is God and you are not. He is God and you are not. And we play God. We take that role and we say, I, I, I can do this. I got this. Matter of fact, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live life the way I want to live. I don't care what my parents have said. I don't care what the Word of God says. I got this. It's mine. My life, my future, my decisions. Ooh, let's see where that gets you. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to show you where it gets you. Verse 3. Or, <laughs> verse 3, the third reason. He declares, the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. You've got to see this. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Don't be lazy and just look on the screen. Find it. I want you to see it in Scripture. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him, who's him? Paul? Peter? No. Capital H, that would be Jesus. For by him all things were created. All things. If you're breathing in this room, you're one of those created things. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist, agnostic, or a believer, or somewhere, whatever you want to declare, you've been created by him. Watch this. Everything that's in heaven's and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him. And underline the last phrase. Why were you created? For him. He created you. For him. He is the king. And he has a kingdom. And God is willing that none perish. And none spend eternity in Satan's dwelling place. His little kingdom called hell but in his kingdom. And this king so loved you, he sent his only begotten son to pay the price for our sin that separated us from his kingdom. And that son who died on a cross rose again from the dead and he is seated now there also reigning victoriously over Satan, all of his demons, any authority that has ever been or ever tried to take away the throne. You were created through him and for him. Now watch verse 17. This is, this is important. He's the creator of all of it. He created you and he created me. Verse 17 says, he is before all things and in him he holds all things together. In him it all holds together. Here's my third reason why he gets the throne and we shouldn't. Because he is the glue and you are not. Well, I thought... I thought the older I was getting, the smarter I was getting. Matter of fact, the older I was getting, the dumber my parents were getting. And the dumber the church was getting. And I had this stuff all figured out. And I realized if I could just get the throne, instead of my parents having, I thought my parents had the throne. They were ruling and reigning over me. That if I could just take this bad boy right here, if I could get in the driver's seat, I could drive faster. I could have a lot more fun. I didn't have to wear a seatbelt. 
It didn't matter what the map said. I was going to go driving where I wanted to drive. And I started driving the car. And I drove myself into literal hell on earth. I drove myself to parties. I drove myself into a life of rebellion against my parents. I drove myself close to an addiction. Whether I was addicted or not, it was certainly heading that way. That was the demon that had owned generations in my family. I grew up around it all my life, and I thought it was my friend. Speaking of the bar stool, Jesus. My life was falling apart. And it wasn't because I wasn't having some fun. It wasn't because I wasn't driving fast and furious. But it's because I was trying to be the glue. I was doing it my way, not his way. And I was sitting in the throne. And I woke up at the age of 17 staring at a dark ceiling and said, God, if this is all there is to life, I don't want to live another day. I had everything the world could give me except a king. And whenever you take the throne, whenever you think I can drive it better, it's going to be much more fun if I do it my way, you've just taken the throne and you've taken on the heartbeat of Satan. That belongs to the king of kings, the one who created you, the one that all things are for, created through him and for him, and the one who holds it all together. If your life has fallen apart, don't blame him. Blame you. Because you've taken the throne. And it'll fall apart every single time. Young people, listen to me. I know the things you hear in church sound archaic and old from an old book. But I promise you it's the wisdom of God. It's the word of God. It's the will of God. And it works way better than what your friends are telling you. They think they figured out. I promise you if you'll trust Jesus with your life, with your purity, with your decisions and your future, you won't be scarred like the peers in your generation and the peers of my generation and the scars of your pastor who thought he could sit on the throne. It's his throne. He is the glue and you are not. And there's a fourth reason. It says that after he made purification of sins, he then sat at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 10 says this, He, having offered one sacrifice for all the sins of the world, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies were footstool for his feet. For by one offering, Jesus, he has perfected, listen to this, for all times, for always, for all of eternity, those who are sanctified, those who have a king have been transformed. Those who have a king have the promise of eternal life. The fourth reason only Jesus belongs on the throne is because he is the way and you are not. He is the way and you are not. I used to think I could make my way to heaven. I used to think I just started going to church with Cammy. Then God would love me. If I just quit going to the parties and started going to church, if I just got baptized, if I just did this, I could make my way to heaven. No, you can't. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. The only way, the only way you can be part of the kingdom of heaven is you've got to have the king. And you've got to place him on the throne of your heart, your life. You've got to say, Jesus, I'm not the king. I'm not the boss. I need you to be my king. Does that happen for you? Is the one who's sitting at the right hand of God sitting on the throne of your life? That hadn't happened for you. If you just have a barstool Jesus, you need to chunk this. And you need to experience this.